I wash my clothes with Tide laundry detergent, <laughs> which I do. Makes things a lot cleaner. Excellent detergent and useful unofficial currency. Yes, it's the best. Tide Pod Challenge. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias with Ezra Klein, Dara Lind. We are here today to talk about collusion. We have a white paper about collusion amongst franchise owners to uh, oppress their labor markets. That's probably what you all were expecting when you clicked on this episode this of This is Weeds. definitely yep. the number one form of collusion that is on people's minds. <laughs> it is um, definitely the form of collusion that is being uh, fought most aggressively by American elected officials. Yes. That said, That's some people <laughs> also thought it was noteworthy that Monday in Helsinki, Finland, Donald Trump stood next to President Vladimir Putin of Russia and delivered a an extraordinary performance. I saw a number of people say that this was like the most disgraceful thing they'd ever seen an American president do, which I think is overstated. But it was certainly the weirdest thing I've ever seen an American president I, I do. I think there is a weird like meta conversation happening here. There must be a German word for the pain of finding out something you already know is true over mm. and over and over again. And, and I feel like the American press corps keeps going through that with Donald Trump. So it's like, back up two weeks. If you just said to any member of the U.S. press corps, like, what is the situation with Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin? How does he feel about him? How does he act towards him? Like, what does he think about the investigation? This person would have said to you, Donald Trump does not trust U.S. intelligence agencies and has often gone to war with them. He believes all investigation here is a witch hunt designed to delegitimize his 2016 um, campaign victory. He would say that he likes Vladimir Putin. Why he likes him so much is a little bit unclear, but definitely he likes him, wants a closer relationship with Russia, does not really like NATO or the EU. And we all knew all this. Like, this was all all like completely understood. Donald Trump has been totally straightforward about it. And then, yes, there is something about watching the president of the United States stand up there on a stage with Vladimir Putin while Putin is like smirking because this is going so well. He never imagined in his wildest dreams this would go so well. And Trump is saying, well, on the one hand, sure, I trust my own intelligence agents. On the other hand, um, Putin offered a very strong denial that it was him. I don't see why Russia would have hacked the election to help me out. That doesn't make any sense to me. So, yes, it was a very weird exhibit. And there is a weirdness in which Donald Trump just refuses to even just do like the minimum to shore up his own position and just like not give all of his critics like absolute maximum leverage over him. But that said, I think that for the level of freakout I am watching roil through the press and the political system, the degree to which nothing new happened, no new policies were announced, and Donald Trump did not in any way change his perspective on either America, intelligence agencies, or Russia and Putin is notable. So, yeah, I mean, I am of two minds on this because I definitely agree with all of that, like, Excellent. you know, I, it, it's not right. Like, <laughs> I'm there, leaving. There I'm nothing, done. <laughs> there was nothing new here. You know, all, all of that. At the same time, we know that White House officials expected there to be something new. We know that they actually thought that this was going to be like a 
a reverse Nixon to China that a White House official told the Wall Street Journal that like they were preparing for Trump to take a hard line for him to confront Putin publicly. It would be a surprise because he's been personally so conciliatory toward Russia in the past. And then the official told the journal, obviously, that didn't happen. Like, I'm not sure if it makes sense to, you know, if if they shouldn't have been surprised, like, I get this is just him saying, again, everything he's already said publicly. So if you're a White House official, what exactly were you expecting to kind of suddenly change in Donald Trump's mind about this? At the same time, though, Quinta Derechek, who writes for Lawfare, had a piece for The Atlantic that compared this to the post-Charlottesville press conference, which I actually think is a very good parallel because that was another example of At very least, if this president is, like, not interested in acknowledging the extent to which racial division and racism have fueled his rise, at very least he can condemn people literally killing an anti-racist protester. And he went and did the very good people on both sides thing. Like, in this case, at very least, the Friday after you have literally an indictment for Russian hacking of the DNC's email operation, you could expect him to say something that would underline that. And the fact that he wasn't even willing to do that, it takes the bottom out of what you could anticipate from conciliatory attitudes in Donald Trump. So also, I don't think it was new, but I think it's important and it is starting to get lost, right? Which is that congressional Republicans, it seems to me, decided long ago that they are all in with Donald Trump on this Russiagate cover-up, right? Like they are fully committed to helping Donald Trump avoid any kind of accountability for this. And they hoped that as part of their own cover-up effort, Trump would say some scoldy words to Putin. They had evidently been briefed by staffers that that was going to happen. Trump then didn't do it. So then Republicans who had been expecting this political win didn't see it. And they acted a little freaked out. That discombobulated neutral reporters. But starting this morning, I see congressional Republicans rallying Right. And like they are back on track on message. And what they were all out there is saying is like, this is frustrating, guys. They're speaking through Mike Allen. They're speaking through Jake Sherman, uh, this sort of go to insiders. And they're saying we're really frustrated by Trump's behavior here. Thoughts and prayers. But what you need to understand is that Trump is so defensive about having the legitimacy of his election questioned that he simply refuses to acknowledge the severity of of the hacking issue. And I think that's bullshit, right? That like what was really telling about that press conference, Trump got this great question from the Reuters journalist, which wasn't about election hacking, right? It was, do you hold the Russians responsible for anything at all that has driven U.S.-Russia relations to a low point. Uh, So today, Tuesday, as we're recording, is the four-year anniversary of when Russian-backed forces in eastern Ukraine shot down a Malaysian Airlines flight and killed 300 civilians, right? That clearly contributed to a downward spiral in U.S.-Russia relations. And you could even both sides it and say that, like, look, America shouldn't have tried to pull Ukraine into the Western orbit in the first place, that that was aggressive. But like everybody knows that the time the Russians shot down a civilian airliner, killed hundreds of Dutch people, that like that contributed. Trump didn't say that, right? Like Trump went up there and he maintained not only his complete innocence and equidistance with the FBI, but that the 
only thing that had made the U.S.-Russia relationship bad was the Mueller investigation. Well, he said both sides are responsible, but the only thing, the only specific, specific thing instance, he would right. name is the Mueller right. investigation. And, and the Charlottesville thing. He said both sides, yes. but then the I'm only a, people I'm he actually right. right. yeah, 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 yeah. His frame was, we're, right. we're all wrong here, right. but right. what's really wrong is Mueller. And, <laughs> and, of course, Trump's apologias on Russia, including specifically on the plane incident, date back to years before the election, right? It's not like this election thing happened out of nowhere and then people started getting on Trump's case about Russia and he started getting defensive about it. Trump in 2015 was saying that maybe Russia wasn't responsible for downing the airliner. Trump in 2015 said in response to a question from a woman who we now know is an indicted Russian spy that he thought the United States should lift sanctions on Russia, that we should try harder to get along with Russia. And like, that's the question. And like, I agree, there's nothing new, but like, it's the non newness of it yes. that I don't think people are confronting. That like, there's a range of interpretations of like Trump's relationship with Russia, but it is deeper than not liking Bob Mueller. So, so, here, so is, here is the shift that I, I do see happening. And I, I think it is interesting. It, it goes to your point, Matt. So, Probably two weeks ago now, one week ago, Jonathan Chait published a big story in New York Magazine that was the, the worst case scenario for Donald Trump and Russia, which is basically arguing that dating back to the late 80s, Donald Trump has been a Russian agent of some sort, compromised or paid off. You know, In this theory, it's a little unclear what is going on. I think people often are too quick to assume it's like a very simple thing. But, but the Donald Trump is somehow being handled by Russia. And so the US president is in fact not an agent of US interests, but is in important ways an agent of Russian interests. And when that story came out, in the sort of like Russia conspiracy sphere, um, it was like very, very highly praised, although people felt it was getting to it late. And then I think in the reporters trying to seem thoughtful and, and above it all sphere. Some people thought it was interesting, but people treated it at arm's length. What I have seen happen in the past couple of days is as Donald Trump went up and decided to absorb considerable political uh, backlash by embracing Putin, by attacking his own folks, by ignoring everything his aides had asked him to do, some of which they had leaked that they had asked him to do to different news outlets. The behavior strikes people as so inexplicable in a rational agent model, right? Even if Donald Trump does like Russia, even if he does like Vladimir Putin, like why act like this? Why not just do the minimum to cover yourself and just make a strong point about the Russia investigation and then just like move on? That Donald Trump himself pushed open the Overton window on Donald Trump and Russia this week, that all of a sudden people are taking much more seriously the idea that maybe he's actually compromised. Voices who have been saying this like Rachel Maddow and Jonathan Chait and others are getting more of a hearing. I, I saw there was this amazing tweet from Ari Fleischer, who is George W. Bush's former press secretary and has emerged as a, as a big Trump apologist, where he said, look, I don't think there's collusion between Donald Trump and Russia, but watching the president with Putin, I could understand why Democrats think there is and why Democrats think that, that Russia has something on Trump. And so I do think that an important political shift that has happened that is not based on new information but is based on just being confronted so aggressively with the information and the behavior that we already had been, had been seeing is that people are entertaining more extreme possible interpretations of the Trump-Russia relationship than they were even two weeks ago. I think that is true. I think it is understandable and I think it is dangerous. Like one of the things that is 
extremely frustrating to me as a journalist about this era is that if it were always the case that whatever facts we don't know are the thing we would most readily jump to because they confirm our pre-existing conceptions, Mm -hmm. none of us would have jobs, right? Like literally the reason that we exist is to illuminate things that people don't know that they wouldn't necessarily be able to fill in on their own. And whenever something happens in this Trump-Russia scandal that is exactly what you would expect if you were writing Cold War fan fiction, like the indictment of the NRA activists on Monday is kind of a great example of this. Like, I totally dismissed initial reporting. Like, the NRA is exactly what liberals would jump to to say, aha, this is an organization we don't like. Maybe it's compromised. And yet, that is, it appears exactly what has happened to a certain extent. And it's very annoying to consistently be wrong because I'm saying it can't be as simple as you assume. At the same time, though, I think it's very easy once you've been burned by that a few times to go, okay, well, I guess it is as simple as everyone assumes and like to jump to the most maximalist interpretation. And one of the dynamics that that creates is assuming that all alternative explanations are exculpatory. Like, I really don't think that the Donald Trump is a ravening maw of ego who is fundamentally incapable of seeing geopolitics beyond the sphere of his triumph over Hillary Clinton in 2016 and is unable to conduct himself as the president of the United States because everything is so distorted by the gravitational field of the 2016 election. Like, I don't think that that's a defense of Donald Trump or if it's being offered as one, it's not a very good one. And I think it's something that we should entertain as a an explanation because it doesn't just apply to Putin. It applies to a bunch of other things. But when it's being seen as the alternative to the Trump is compromised by Russia narrative, it creates a very weird dynamic where people are being accused of giving Trump the benefit of the doubt he doesn't deserve or something else weird like that. When in fact, the conversation we should be having is, okay, the United States government is being led by a man who is not acting as a rational actor and who his own aides and the members of his party acknowledge is like unable to steer the ship of state because he's so obsessed with his own flimsy victory in 2016. All right, let's take a break. And I want to return to that pushback a little bit. Dollar Shave Club, if you are familiar with the English language, you are probably aware that they provide you with shaving supplies. They're great shaving supplies. I haven't ever a beard, so I only do a modest amount of shaving on a daily basis. But they've also got a really great calming body cleanser. It's amber and lavender. It smells really nice. You're not going to find a product like that at a store anywhere. And it comes, you know, along with all of the sort of great Dollar Shave Club service. And they've got everything that you need in the bathroom. Shampoo, conditioner toothpaste, hair gel. Uh, They got even some butt wipes. They say it will leave your tush feeling tingly clean. Anything you need for your sort of like basic grooming routine, Dollar Shave Club has it. Their products are made with top shelf ingredients that will not break your budget. You are going to feel the difference and shipping is included with your membership. So like it's cheap, it's convenient, it's great stuff. So here's what you need to know. If you want to try a bunch of Dollar Shave Club's products for just five bucks, you can get their daily essential starter set. Comes with body cleanser, one wipe Charlie's, that's the butt wipes, their world-famous shave butter, and their best razor, the six-blade executive razor. Keep the blades coming for a few more bucks a month. Add in shampoo, toothpaste, or anything else you need for the bathroom. You can check it all out at dollarshaveclub.com slash weeds. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash weeds. 
Hello, listeners of The Weeds. I want to tell you about a new podcast, The Arthur Brooks Show. That's me, Arthur Brooks, and I'm president of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm making a new podcast with Vox Media. Now, as president of AEI, that's a Washington think tank, I see bitter disagreement all the time, and it's terrible. We need some way to disagree, not less, but better. So this is a series that looks at the art of disagreement. The first episode is out July 12th. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And most of all, subscribe right now. So, I mean, I agree that on its surface, like Donald Trump is a mentally unstable little baby, is not like a great defense of him. But I think beyond the question of whether it's exculpation or not, the issue is that a lot of Republicans on the Hill, to me, are not grappling with the scope of what is taking place. And I can offer in the scandal sense a like 100 percent exculpatory vision of Donald Trump that I think people should take more seriously. What if Donald Trump believes – based on reading some old Pat Buchanan books or some old John Lukacs takes from the 1970s, that the United States should form a geopolitical alliance with Russia, right? And that the United States should disrupt its traditional alliance system in favor of a new, different alliance system based on different values. Like, that's not a scandal at all. I happen to think it's a bad idea. But like it's a big deal. It's not like Trump is being a whiny baby. It's Trump is trying to revolutionize American foreign policy. And I don't know whether that's true or a compromise theory is true or what. But what I do know is that Trump's actions extend way beyond the confines of this special counsel investigation. That like he has said that we should disrupt NAFTA and our trade agreements there. He said that we should consider the national security threat of imported British aluminum, right? Like he has said that we maybe shouldn't have troops on the Korean Canadian Peninsula. Canadian aluminum? Yes, Canadian aluminum, uh, British steel. British, al- British aluminum is very safe. <laughs> British steel. Um, aluminum. Aluminum, sure. <laughs> and there is a big thing going on here that it's true Trump is being constrained by the institutional actors inside the executive branch, right? That like not everybody just jumps at his fingertips and the military and the intelligence services and diplomatic corps and congressional Republicans all keep sort of trying to keep Humpty Dumpty together again. But like Trump is clearly attempting to like seriously revise American foreign policy. And I think to speculate as to exactly what motivates that is difficult. But I think it's more challenging than it should be to get people to even engage with the fact that this is what's happening. I'm worried I'm about to do the thing that you're warning against doing. I think there is a lot of focus still, like an almost obsessive focus on what we don't know, particularly around motivation. So is Donald Trump doing things because he believes that America should form a new geopolitical alliance with Russia because Russia has a P-tape that they're holding over his head because Donald Trump is financially enmeshed with him? Just because Donald Trump is very personally thin-skinned and reacts extremely strongly to people praising him, extremely poorly to people criticizing him, has just gotten his back up about this Putin and Mueller thing and is so just operating in an emotionally reactive way. I don't know. But I do think that the constant focus on that question – 
really is distracting people from what we do know. I think how much we know at this point is really underplayed in the way the press reports us. Obviously, to Dara's point, we are interested in iterative breaks and filling in the gaps that remain in our information. But a, a cost of that often, a cost that Vox is in many ways founded on, is it people miss then the, the big picture. So I want to just go through, I, I just wrote a piece on this this week, a little bit about just what we do know, because I, I think we should just like set the table here. So we know that Russia orchestrated a massive theft of information from the Democratic Party and the Clinton campaign and used that information to help Donald Trump win the election. We also know Russia, in order to help Donald Trump win the election, ran massive social media campaigns trying to inflame racial divisions and also probed a number of state election systems to see if they could tamper with him. Doesn't appear they succeeded there, but we know they tried. We know that Trump publicly asked Russia to hack Clinton's emails. We know that the first time Russia actually did try to hack Clinton's personal emails came the same day Donald Trump asked him for it. And we know that Trump repeatedly praised Vladimir Putin at quite a bit of considerable political cost in the aftermath. We also know that Trump associates like Roger Stone appear to have advanced warning of the release of the emails. Um, we know that Trump wasn't the only person in his campaign who was interested in cooperation with Russia, among other things, when a Russian operative reached out to Donald Trump Jr. and said, I've got some dirt on Hillary Clinton. I'd like to give it to you. Donald Trump Jr. said, if it's what you say, I love it, and brought the campaign manager, Paul Manafort, and also Jared Kushner, um, the first son-in-law, I guess you would call him, to the meeting. The meeting happened at Trump Tower. In the aftermath of that meeting, Donald Trump personally dictated a statement to the public lying about what that meeting was about, saying it was about adoption policy. The White House first said Donald Trump had nothing to do with that statement. Then it turned out he personally is the one who wrote it, lying to us about it. So they thought they had something to hide there. Um, we know from Trump's own public testimony that he fired the director of the FBI to end his investigation into Russia's role in the 2016 election. We know, again, from things Trump has said, that he wishes he had never hired and now wishes he could fire his attorney general for not being able to protect him well enough from the uh, Mueller investigation. We know, to, to Matt's point about all this going back a bit further, that in 08, Donald Trump Jr. said of the Trump Organization, Russians make up a pretty disproportionate cross-section of a lot of our assets. In 2014, Eric Trump said, we don't rely on American banks. We have all the funding we need out of Russia, which is just an amazing quote. We know from McClatchy that from 03 to 2017, buyers connected to Russia or former Soviet republics made 86 all-cash sales, totaling more than $100 million at Trump-branded properties. I mean, this goes on. We know that Paul Manafort... Was in debt to Oleg Deripaska, a Russian oligarch close to Putin. And he actually asked um, Deripaska's team, now that I'm campaign manager, how do we use this to get whole? We know a lot. We know the Trump campaign intervened in the drafting of the platform to weaken the, the language on Russia. We know the Kushner sought a secret communications channel with Russians so the U.S. government couldn't hear their negotiations. We know that Trump has repeatedly fought both his administration and his party to stop sanctions. We know that Donald Trump has worked to undermine NATO, worked to undermine the alliance with the EU, done everything he can to bring him closer to, to Putin. At some point, we know so much. Like there, it does there's, sound a little suspicious. There's been such an extraordinary convergence of um, interests on both sides, meetings, contacts, some of them forgotten, some of them private, some of them public, some of them remembered, that it's not even clear to me how different the, the different motivation questions are. Like let's say that Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin emailed to set up the Vladimir Putin's team is going to hack emails, but Donald Trump after the election is going to like help Putin out and undermine NATO. Just how different is that from Donald Trump saying publicly, hey, Russians, could you hack the emails? And Putin saying, I don't like NATO and be great if America and Russia had a, a different working relationship. The obstruction of justice stuff is similarly, it's like so far beyond at this point, I think what people mean when they say obstruction of justice. It is just weird. My theory on this at this point is that we keep waiting for something else because we're hoping some 
something will trigger consequences. But we know plenty. We just don't know what to do with what we know. There's no actors in American politics with like the power, the incentive, and the credibility to bring any kind of consequence. And so we keep hoping that Mueller will find something that like it itself will unlock the spell that like creates some some kind of aftermath here. But we're not because the Republicans, to your point, Matt, they don't want to hold anyone accountable for this. So yeah, like it's embarrassing. Like the story at this point is more than clear enough to know that something is really wrong here, but nobody quite like wants to do anything about it. And I think we keep looking for something else to come out without a really a, a, a right. clear theory of what it would do even if it did. So I think that that is part of it. I think that the P-tape is the, <laughs> the ur-MacGuffin here, right? Yes. Like it's the thing. And the reason for that is because it's at the nexus of a lot of things that journalists, that political watchers, that people who care about public information often fetishize, which is we fetishize documents. We fetishize things that are secret. We fetishize things that have to do with sex. And we, you know, fetishize kind of the one thing that is going to explain everything else, right? Like maybe because they can't bring consequences down in the same way. But the idea that there is, you know, kind of one answer here that someone actually successfully blackmailed Donald Trump into something, because I think the other problem with everything you've just laid out is that a lot of it is incompetence, right? Like, even regardless of the motivations here, it is clear that the Trump campaign, like, was sloppy with a lot of stuff. One of the reasons motivation is such a tempting thing to argue about is because there were isn't a whole lot of difference in what we know between the Trump children are helping their father collude with Russia and the Trump children are just really, really stupid. Well, it could be when you're thinking about it for criminal reasons, motivation and intent end up being really important, which is one reason, I guess, also that people might focus there. Right. But in terms of its geopolitical implications, it's not clear how big it is. Right. Well, the thing about geopolitics, though, and this is kind of where I am really struggling right now is – when you were listing everything, Ezra, you were talking a lot about like Trump fighting his administration on the NATO stuff, on the sanctions stuff. And that's true, right? Like there's a lot of policy levers that are being pushed at the State Department that are not necessarily distinguishable from what would have been done under a Clinton administration on Russia. And like it's not that Donald Trump is incapable of hiring officials who do what he wants to do on things. Like, for all the crap about Jeff Sessions, like, Donald Trump has successfully installed an attorney general and a few officials at DHS who are doing things on immigration that Donald Trump isn't aware of but would probably be very happy about if he did, right? Like, it's not like the Trump agenda is incapable of being turned into policy or that the president hasn't demonstrated an ability to hire people who will get that done for him. And the question that I have is, either in a collusion sense or in a kind of new geopolitical alliance, you know, Matt's innocent explanation sense, both of those only make sense if you're actually moving the policy needle on Russia. And that's where I don't understand what's going on right now. Let's take a break. We are sponsored this week by Secret Clinical Strength Antiperspirant, and they would like to clear up a few things about their product. So number one, Secret Clinical Strength Antiperspirant is not actually a secret. You can tell anyone about it. That's why they have me telling you about it right now. That said, it is clinically strong. That means it is good at preventing sweat, like twice as good as regular antiperspirant. That's why they put it on the top shelf. That's why it's called clinical strength. Three, strength. 
that's a cool word. You don't see it a ton on women's deodorant packaging. So they were like, sure, like, let's shake things up. Let's be strong. Here we are. Because for sweating, is it good? No. It is the worst. It is summer now in Washington, D.C. It is not my favorite season. It is a very, very, very sweaty season. That's why it's good to have a good antiperspirant. Four and a half, not sweating is great, and that is why you should buy Secret Clinical Strength Antiperspirant. Have you watched Fox's new Netflix show yet? If you haven't, like, do it. Go do it tonight. The show is called Explained. Each episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. This week's episode is all about the exclamation point. Exclamation point! I got an early preview, and and I think you're going to love it. It breaks down how our use of the exclamation point has changed throughout history. You probably know if you existed. People use more exclamation points than they used to. But, like, the whole history of that is fascinating. There's more to it than you might think. And we understand, like, why is this so confusing? Is there something better we can do? And explains the surprising history of the new punctus. It considers another way to end a sentence, the interrobang. Um, you know, it, it's really good. It's a really interesting show. So check it out on Netflix or go straight to netflix.com slash explained. And while you're there, if you want to get notified about new episodes automatically, just add explain to your list. While you guys were talking, literally, Donald Trump issued a a tweet that I think sheds some light of this. And he says, while I had a great meeting with NATO raising vast amounts of money, I had an even better meeting with Vladimir Putin of Russia. Sadly, it is not being reported that way, M-dash. The fake news is going crazy with a capital C and an exclamation point. I feel like it is being reported that way, actually. <laughs> I feel like I feel like in terms of the, like, Donald Trump had not that good of a meeting with NATO, but really enjoyed his meeting with Vladimir Putin is precisely how yes, this has been I, reported. I, I agree. I agree. But so – of course, we don't know what happened in the private meeting with Putin, only what happened in the, in the press conference. As far as we can tell from the reporting, what transpired in the Trump-Putin uh, meeting was that they tried to reach some kind of agreement to reconcile Russia's involvement on the ground in Syria in defense of the Assad regime with Israel's security concerns about getting Iranian-backed forces away from its border. Uh, We had a a good report in The New Yorker which said that the Gulf Arab states, which we know have had a very strong relationship with Donald Trump, sort of seem to have suggested this idea. You know, they've been – not quite working with Israel against Iranian interests. Uh, But they came up with the idea that, look, maybe the United States, Russia, and Israel can work together to give up on the Syrian rebels but get Assad to kick the Iranians out of Syria, right? I frankly don't have a strong opinion on the merits of this idea. But, like, that is clearly, like, a real policy idea. Right. With like some concrete stakes and and concrete meaning. And it seems to be at least one of the things that Trump and Putin talked about. And to me, what's been frustrating about this whole experience is that, you know, you were saying, Dara, that like an immigration, right, like Trump had a policy that was different from sort of mainstream Republican immigration policy, but he got it done. Jeff Sessions and Stephen Miller's immigration policy was not the dominant Republican Party immigration policy, but it was a real strain of Republican Party thinking. Jeff Sessions was an actual influential United States senator. He has allies in the House of Representatives on this. But on Russia policy, Trump is like genuinely swimming alone. There's nobody on the Republican bench who is interested in this like revisionist Russia policy idea that he seems to have. And so we have this incredible uh, shadiness 
around everything Trump does that maybe because there's like a scandal in the background, but it may just be that like Trump has not been able to wield his own administration around the policy viewpoint that we should cede Ukraine in a sphere of influence to Russia. Well, and consider the idea that he tried. So when Trump came into office, like, who did he pick? So he picked Michael Flynn, who had very unusually pro-Russian views and had taken a lot of money from Russia Today and sat at, like, a head table with Vladimir Putin. And he had Rex Tillerson, who was from outside the Republican. Who was from outside and had, like, won this Order of Friendship medal with Putin. And and I think it's totally reasonable to say that, you know, Rex Tillerson just had to do a lot of deals and probably, to our knowledge, was not a Russian agent, did not run a very pro-Russian State Department. But you can very much imagine how when Donald Trump was meeting people in the Oval Office and he brought up like, oh, like I think like Washington's pretty nuts on Russia. I think Vladimir Putin's a guy I can do a deal with. And and Tillerson would be like, yeah, I've done a number of deals with Vladimir Putin. You can totally do that. And sure enough, um, Tillerson came in and he, because it was like a little bit unclear, like he was like a, a like a good businessman, you know, so Republicans liked him and, and Donald Trump thought he'd get it. It didn't work, as you say. But but I really think that something people underplay is that Donald Trump tried. It just blew up in his face. Right. And in part, it blew up in his face because there's this background of scandal behind it, right? Yeah. So like when Barack Obama was president, right, he was heavily criticized by Republicans, but also to an extent by Democratic Party hawks for not being tough enough on Russia. Right. And there was an understanding that his secretary of defense, Ash Carter, would have preferred a more hawkish line and that Hillary Clinton, were she to become president, would implement a more hawkish line. And I thought that was wrong personally. It seemed to me that if anything, Obama had allowed a little bit of an autopilot on Ukraine to carry forward with no real plan and no real strategy and they were provoking this sort of conflict over Eastern Europe that America had no real interest in. But unfortunately, it's now gotten to the point, including the point where like Donald Trump seems to have either before or after the fact complicity in like actual crimes against American citizens and is going around saying that the things that Russia did, like he's pretending they didn't even happen. It's created this toxicity around the idea of trying to have a diplomatic rapprochement that I think is really unfortunate. Like it's, it's counterproductive. Like there's these like glimmers of sanity when Trump talks about this with Hannity last night where he's like, these are the only two nuclear powers in the world. It's important that we get along. Or we shouldn't have a policy that pushes Russia into an alliance with China. And like those to me are like ideas that make sense, right? But you said it's like Nixon goes to China in reverse. But like that doesn't like that doesn't work, right? right. Like there's a reason Nixon goes to China, right? If Nixon had been elected with the active assistance of Chinese military intelligence, then he wouldn't be able to go to China. Like you need to establish that you have a clear view of who the other side is yeah. and you have a clear side of whose interests you are working for because otherwise you can't make a deal. And so Trump will say things like, oh, Mueller's investigation is making it hard for me to make a deal. But like that's not true at all, right? It's the underlying pattern of shady conduct that makes it hard to do a deal because when you shake hands on an arrangement, you have to be able to come back home and be like, this is a good deal for us. And nobody is confident 
like what Trump is playing for. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's worth noting that if the Russian goal in March 2015, which is when the allegations in the Butina indictment date back to, like if their plan had been, we are going to make sure that the next Republican president, whoever he is, approaches Russia in a more hawkish way, it would be a little late, but you could imagine them kind of seeding the foreign policy infrastructure with some ideas there, doing a little bit of indirect support of a few talking heads here and there in a way that would build more credibility for that as an idea outside of a particular candidate. They didn't do that, right? Like instead they're going with this like, we're going to have an agent who's, you know, a gun activist. We're going to hire a bunch of dudes to shitpost for two straight years. And I think that what that kind of clarifies for me is as little as we know or understand, you know, arguably we don't necessarily need to know everything about the motivations of the American actors, we have a pretty clear sense of what Russia is going for, right? Like in their interference in other elections, there are two primary goals. One is the enhanced viability in elections of people who espouse kind of this transnational white nationalist populism. And two is just kind of general chaos, right? There is the kind of early assessment of the intelligence community that the Russians weren't necessarily working to elect Trump. They were working to discredit Hillary Clinton on the assumption that she would win, which obviously they later like updated once it became clear that Trump could actually maybe win the election. That is a very important thing to understand that like the goal here isn't necessarily to have somebody to control exactly who is in the heads of state of major world powers. It is to have a situation in which democracy is not necessarily fully trusted by the people under it. And in that scenario, the kind of strongman alternative is able to take the world stage with more credibility than it would otherwise have. So the the thing I want to add to that is that I think when we talk about motive on both sides, we have weirdly like narrow linear thinking about it. It it always has to be one thing. Like either Donald Trump is being blackmailed by the P tape or he's, you know, friendly with Vladimir Putin or whatever. And just I think in all human interactions, the motivations, relationships, incentives, et cetera, are complex. And I just do think that with the Trump-Russia axis, it's just worth taking seriously the idea that you have actors here who a lot of different things come together for them over a long period of time to create a cooperative basis for relationship. And then that in turn creates more cooperative basis for relationship. So imagine like one of the darker scenarios. Donald Trump is heavily in hawk over time, the Trump organization, to different kinds of Russian creditors. And so they've taken a bunch of money from Russian banks or, or, or Russian um, individuals in order to keep the, the, the organization afloat during tough times. They've got a lot of sort of maybe shady deals on the books, deals for Russians or investors. They know there's some vulnerability there. But rather than Vladimir Putin or somebody ever coming to them and saying, you know, you do what we want or else, the way they actually experience it is there are all these like great Russian Russian businessmen who help them out in a time of need and they just like have a little bit more trust of them and then of the people they introduce them to. And then, you know, again, now we're sort of in the campaign and Donald Trump is saying nice things about Vladimir Putin because he's had pretty good experiences with Russia. He's enjoyed his trips there. A bunch of Russians have bailed him out. Uh, People have said good things. He enjoyed doing Miss Universe in Moscow. And now he's getting all this shit for it from people he doesn't like anyway. And so now he's getting his back up. And so he doesn't like the people attacking him and he does like Vladimir Putin and he does like Russians and they have helped him out. 
concept. And now, you know, he's much more primed to hear a theory about why it would be a good idea for America to connect with Russia on geopolitics and maybe he was before or maybe then he would have been otherwise. He's much more like motivated reasoning is a powerful thing and so he's developing a real theory around why his intuitions on this are correct. And meanwhile, this foreign policy establishment, not to mention all these leaders of European nations and Canada who treat Trump with barely disguised contempt every time they're in a room with him. They don't like him. But Vladimir Putin, who's like runs the only other nuclear mega power and like seems like a real manly dude who doesn't like immigrants very much. And, you know, there's this amazing exchange on Morning Joe during the campaign where Joe Scarborough said to Trump, you know, Vladimir Putin kills journalists. I mean, this is a brutal dictator. And Trump said, yeah, well, at least he's a leader, unlike what we have in this country. Among other things, Donald Trump has a lot of respect, like an intuitive respect from authoritarian strongmen. And so there's a lot coming together where Donald Trump's view of Donald Trump might never, ever be, even if it's semi-true, that he's somehow a compromised Russian asset or in any way a Russian asset. He might just have built out of a lot of different parts a partially self-interested, partially at this point philosophical and geopolitical idea, partially just a, a, an emotionally reactive like connection to Russia. And similarly, Russia to Trump might have never thought much of Donald Trump. You know, good to have a famous American businessman on your side. And then Trump is running and it's like, yeah, let's cause a little bit of chaos. They really don't like Hillary Clinton, so they're trying to, to mess with her. And then over time, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then it actually works. And one of the reasons I don't love the endless focus on motive is that, one, I'm not sure there ever is a clear answer. Human motivations are complex. They're multifaceted. They feel different to people than even what they necessarily are. You may look from the outside and say, oh, this person has leverage over them. And from the inside, actually, the way it felt was that you felt very friendly towards someone who had helped you out in a tight spot. They had shown they were a trustworthy friend and ally, and now you were paying them back in kind. The way you frame it can be very different and illuminating. And it just evolved into a more and more powerful collaboration over time. Neither side quite realized what the other could do for them in an ongoing way. But as each step has gone by and at each point, like they've really helped each other out, like Russia really did help Donald Trump win the election. Donald Trump really has been a great ally for Russia's foreign policy on the world stage. And so now they, they, they really are on some level. Trump is like not bullshitting. He has built a great foundation for America to have a friendlier relationship with Russia. Whether we are comfortable with that foundation or that relationship, that's a great and important political question. But what's happening uh, on the underlying level here, like the idea of there's collusion and cooperation and weird levels of trust and Trump clearly feeling a deeper alliance to Putin than he does even to many American allies. Like, that's just true. Like, that case is clear and closed. We have the evidence on it. Like, like we should decide what we're going to do with that information, not continuously be surprised by it. Okay, but what if in 2013, Trump went to Moscow, hired some hookers, and there's a videotape of it? Well, let's take a break. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're doing these days in, in your life, in your business, in your career, but it's 2018 and almost everything goes better with a website. And tragically, there are still a lot of bad websites out there. The reason there are bad websites is that people think making a good website needs to be hard, but it does not. The answer is Squarespace. You can turn your cool idea into a new website, showcase your work, you can sell products and services of all kind, you can promote your physical or online businesses, you can announce upcoming events or special projects or more, and it's really easy. They've got beautiful templates. They're created by world-class designers. And then you can tweak it, right? You can choose from over 200 extensions. You can have built-in search engine optimization, free, secure hosting. There's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Each Squarespace website is like a beautiful, unique snowflake. They don't look like 
like cookie cutter, but they do look professional, which is what's really important. Plus, they have really powerful e-commerce functionality, which the technical details of operating e-commerce are, are very complicated, but Squarespace can handle all that for you, and you just need to get the front end so your products and your designs are right there. So if you're ready to start a new business or, or do anything else, make it stand out with Squarespace. Here's the deal. If you head to squarespace.com weeds, you're going to get a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code weeds and you can save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. It's time to talk about real collusion. Yes. Theory and evidence on employer collusion in the franchise sector by Alan B. Kruger and Orly Ashenfelter. Uh, this this is, actually, is the deep state. This is a former Obama chief economist. No, this is a really good, uh, really good paper, I think. So there's a lot of talk perennially for the past couple of years about wages and why wage growth has not been as high as you might think, given uh, the low unemployment rate. Often some very uh, esoteric theories get mooted for this. But they look at something else, which is what if employers have agreements with each other in which they promise not to hire away each other's workers? And they note that in most cases, this is illegal. Um, but that's not to say it doesn't happen. There are a few cases in which employers have been caught with these kind of cartels. So, so just to, to, to make yeah. this vivid, so it's like if Vox Media and the New York Times made a deal that we couldn't hire from each other, that would be illegal. Right. Yes. So that would be illegal. And it happens anyway. And yeah. we don't really know how well enforced that is. But they look at a particular case of this, which is that a lot of companies organize as franchises, right? So McDonald's is a big company, but most of the McDonald's restaurants you see are owned by separate franchise owners. And so when you get a McDonald's franchise, there's a complicated contract. And it's like you have to pay McDonald's such and such money. You have some flexibility with your pricing and hours, but also certain minimum standards you need to live up to. There's rules about like where you buy your plastic forks from. There's, there's a lot of ins and outs to it. What these uh, researchers investigate is that 58% of franchise contracts include a provision that says, if I own a McDonald's, I cannot hire away people who work at another guy's McDonald's. Burger King, Jiffy Lube, H&R Block are some of the most prominent companies they name that have these kind of deals. And that's striking for one thing because it gets into a, a legal gray area where – you know, it's obviously perfectly permitted to say that, like, a Vox editor cannot poach a worker from a different Vox editor, right? That's just called running a company. But, like, Vox and the New York Times definitely cannot have an agreement like that. These franchises have an ambiguous relationship to one another in which for the purposes of these no poaching agreements, they're saying, look, it's an internal uh, agreement. But in like a million other scenarios that come before the NLRB, they would say, no, 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 these are completely independent businesses. It's also important because from a pure hiring perspective, right, like who better to staff your new McDonald's than somebody who has experience literally working at McDonald's? Right. Like it's the most obvious kind of hiring to do. You know, you're really giving up something meaningful when you restrict yourself from making that kind of hiring. But it can be a powerful tool for suppressing wages. And it also means that the labor market is much more concentrated than it looks superficial. Right. That like one problem with forming a, an illegal collusion ring is that you might need like a huge number of participants, right? And it's it's hard to get 
500 different employers to agree. But if you don't really have 500 different employers, if they're actually organized into just four franchises, then it's a lot easier. The legal collusion creates a foundation for doing illegal collusion. And the whole thing is, I think, just like a little underexplored. Like we don't really know. The federal government doesn't appear to put a ton of effort into policing this kind of conduct. And it's potentially quite big. So I think it's underexplored in its specific and then underexplored also just generally. I would say the big point this is making is that there are within the labor market restrictions on worker bargaining power and leverage that are often quite opaque. I think they found a really fascinating place to to show it. But another one is non-compete clauses. Throughout the economy, we have all these different kinds of non-compete clauses. You worked at a robotics firm in your thing. It says you cannot then go work at another robotics firm. But of course, like who would be the first person to hire you and give you a raise? A lot of people believe that one reason Silicon Valley succeeded in the way it did is that unlike other places where they did have burgeoning robotics, computer, et cetera, firms and sectors in the 70s like Boston – California will not enforce non-competes. So non-competes are illegal in California functionally and or at least unenforceable. And so the different technology players were able to constantly hire people back and forth from the different firms that they worked at where that was not true in other places where non-competes got enforced. You wanted to leave but you couldn't and your your job just said no. So you had to go work in a different industry. There appear to be a lot of these. I mean Matt has focused a lot in the past on occupational licensing. But I don't think that should be considered in a completely separate space in this. I mean it's not about which group you can go to but it is about in many cases whether you can go into an industry at all. And as a place where you can imagine there being a certain amount of left-right convergence on theories of the economy and theories to fix the economy, this stuff has always struck me as very promising. The, the, the libertarian ideas that Steve Tellis and Brink Lindsay have put forward, they focus on, on this stuff a lot. But just the idea that workers should have the power to go get a better job or to enter an industry with relatively little legal barrier, that seems pretty obvious. And the degree to which both that, – that's often not true and the degree to which we don't even know the degree to which it is not true seems pretty profound. I will note that there's an important caveat in this paper, which is they do not know how well or how often or to what extent these provisions are actually enforced. I've had the experience of having to deal with a lot of contract negotiations over the past you know, different years as I've done different jobs. And when we set up Vox, like you remember going through the actual contracting on that. And contracts do have this quality of outlining a very severe code of behavior that then the way people actually act in practice often isn't quite that bad. So I'm always a little careful saying that the way a contract is written is how an entire industry will work. But oftentimes, a way a contract is written is how an industry will work. So, so that would be a place where I'd love to see micro-level data talking to different workers. I mean, you could do studies of randomly asking 800 different workers from different kinds of franchises that we know have these in place to see what their experience with it has been like. I think the thing about – and. <laughs> As someone who, when I am done taping this episode, is going to go back into a union contract negotiation, (laughs) one of the things that I've learned from this process is that that dynamic that you've described is absolutely true. And it means that the people who actually read the contract are acting in more constrained ways than they necessarily need to. Mm -hmm. Um, There's – without kind of talking shop on union stuff too much, like – A lot of concerns in this sector are about, like, who owns your ideas, right? Right. And – 
as someone who read the agreement that I signed when I came to Vox, I have kind of assumed that like Vox owns all of my ideas. Uh, And it turns out that had I not read that, I might have come away with a different assumption and a different expectation for what I could do without kind of going through the company. And so in the case of franchises, I think that it's reasonable to assume that they're in the rule following side of that spectrum because, as you guys talked about, there is so much that goes into being a franchisee. It is a more formal relationship with the corporate parent. So even if workers themselves like are going to follow along a spectrum in how much they're reading it, the franchisee who's actually the one doing the hiring is probably on likely to fall on that side. That said, though, the really interesting thing about raising this paper right now is that we actually are coming off a week where seven major employers agreed to stop enforcing these clauses, including McDonald's, Carl's Jr., a bunch of things, thanks to an agreement from the Washington state attorney general who's been fighting on this, part of the broader trend of Democratic state attorney generals kind of doing liberal policymaking. And McDonald's, which was one of the chains that was involved in here, had apparently already agreed not to enforce those clauses in its contracts. And it's now like making that legally binding. But between that and the fact that even though the legal agreement is only specific to Washington state, but the chains involved are all agreeing not to do it, period, that says to me that the companies themselves are realizing either that the tide is turning away from them or this is no longer to their benefit. Can I jump in on one quick thing on that? Jump away. One of the things that I wonder about these agreements, uh, and I think the the I didn't know what you had just said about McDonald's, but it's really interesting, is when yeah, I I'll read this, I thought that's not a good rule for McDonald's, right? <laughs> so if there's another franchise that um, is a more profitable franchise or is opening up in a more profitable area and you need people who know how to work in a franchise to set it up and so you're willing like because the market will bear it to offer them more money, like that's in theory. Like that's how the thing is supposed to work. Like the price signals are supposed to actually like move the, the best talent to the places where the best talent is the most productive. And there are a lot of things like this that – are done to make the lives of companies or franchisees easier, but are not necessarily better, that a, that a certain amount of friction and, and what can even feel chaotic can be good. So Matt was saying earlier that you can't just poach within a company from different divisions. I've had some experience with that at the, the Washington Post where I ended up sort of unusually in a negotiation between the Post and Newsweek um, that, that ended up getting worked out fine. But I remember thinking then that – what was the company achieving aside from like not having managers complain that someone else wanted one of their employees? And like, was that actually better? Was it better that they had made a blanket rule that one division couldn't try to attract an employee away from another division? Like, yes, I, I totally recognize that it's annoying for the people who run these companies to then have an editor or a manager come to you and complain about what an editor or manager in another division is doing. And it's like one like easy way to make your life more convenient is to stop it from happening just as it would be nice like for you know people who run companies to like stop other people from taking the, their workers. But we know that for the economy, that's not a better thing. And it isn't in any way obvious to me it's a better thing for companies either. So here's my – Evidence-free speculation. But I think that we need to have more inquiry into this because I strongly believe that rigorous investigation is going to show that illegal or possibly tacit employer collusion is incredibly widespread and that like textbook economic models of the labor market are completely 
completely wrong. That I, I think about like a, a, an editor I used to know who we were just talking casually about people in the business and he mentioned someone and was like, I would love to hire her, but I can't. And I said, why? And he said, well, because he works for so-and-so. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, he's a friend of mine. I can't do that to him. Right. And so that wasn't even. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's crazy. But, that's th- but that wasn't even an agreement. Right. Right. That's not even like employer to employer collusion. That's like. It goes up to the brink of being a gentleman's agreement between friends to not poach each other. But to be clear, he wasn't even saying to me that he had an explicit agreement with his friend not to poach, but just that they were friends. So you wouldn't do it. Right. I mean, just like I don't have an agreement to like not leave stinky trash on my neighbor's lawn. Like I I just don't. Right. You don't do rude things to your friends. Poaching employees is rude. And so if there's an arm's length relationship, you might do it. But a lot of people are social friends with their peers. And I think particularly if you were to look at like smaller towns, right, like in a town with six restaurants, do the people, the owners of those six restaurants regard each other as fierce competitors who they are like constantly trying to get each other's best line cooks away from? Or are they friends who attend the same church or participate in the same community charity functions and like would not screw each other over, right? And, you know, not everybody lives in, in communities like that. But, like, you think about the the old – there was a Silicon Valley hiring cartel that got busted up, right? And the reason it got busted up is that they had too much paper on it, right? But, like, people know, right, there's conference circuits in technology and a million other industries. Like, there, people go to great deal of effort to, like, get to know other people who are similar to them. And it's a very powerful psychological impulse that I think, like, really inhibits hiring. You've just done a perfect mirror image of the monologue that Ezra had going into the end of the Russia segment of this podcast, that like things that appear from the outside to be a shady, unethical or illegal, like underhand relationship between two people, in fact, from the inside look like this person is my friend and has behaved warmly toward me and therefore I'm going to behave warmly toward them. And I think that both of these are true and powerful dynamics and also explain why, you know, the question that Ezra raised about why this isn't a nexus for libertarian or left-right policy cooperation is because people who sympathize naturally with employers, who like think of themselves as protecting the interests of business and who think that business owners are, you know, good people who make the economy run and that workers, when they try to adopt an adversarial attitude toward employers, are, you know, trying to slow down the wheels of the economy. This kind of stuff, yeah, maybe ideally you would not have non-competes be legal in this sense, right? You wouldn't have no franchise poaching laws. But In practice, that's not where you're going to expend your energy because that would be hurting the side that you naturally identify with. And it's just there's no particular reason, you know, if Republican policymakers in both of these cases, you know, both with Russia and employer collusion are going, well, if they have the power, why not use that power? I don't particularly see any reason why we should shoot ourselves in the foot by taking a stand on principle, then you're not going to get anywhere, even if in theory you can get them to agree that it would be a bad thing for Russia to, you know, hack the server of a political party or a bad thing for an employer not to be able to hire an employee from another franchise. 
All right. Collusion everywhere. Collusion everywhere. Collusion everywhere. Thank you for colluding with me to produce this episode Aww, of The Weeds. I would oh, collude with you that's anytime, fantastic. Ezra. Collusion um, Valentines are going to be great this year. <laughs> yes. We hope that you all will collude with us because <laughs> The Weeds has been segue. nominated by this year's People's <laughs> Choice Podcast Awards. And you can vote for our show for free by going to podcastawards.com or by tapping the link in the show notes. Voting ends on Tuesday, July 31st, so do not wait. What, what was the URL for that? podcastawards.com. Go there right now to cast your votes for the week. Collude with us to rig this podcast. No! <laughs> yes. Please no, do no. not! Be, this is fair. It's all above board. This yeah, is what we're supposed not, you to can't, do. The integrity of the podcast awards shall not be questioned by anyone. I mean, to stand up next to a great adversary and disparage <laughs> it, it's, it's the most shameful moment in podcasting. So thanks for listening to our engineer, Griffin Tanner. Thanks as always. We will be back on Friday. Mm-hmm.